0: welcome to Health by Heather Hirsch, a podcast dedicated to uncovering many of the women's health issues many of us are wondering about, but few of us are talking about. My mission is to expose the current gaps in knowledge and care on all things women's health. Enjoy. Hey everyone, thank you so much for tuning in to Health by Heather Hirsch. From the bottom of my heart, I absolutely appreciate it. Today's episode is sponsored by a favorite product of mine, Uber Lube. I've been recommending this to my patients for years. What I love about Uber Lube is that they use a silicon base and allergies then are extremely rare. It has no added ingredients like scents, flavors, or spermicides, which are often the very same ingredients that cause irritations or reactions. It's also free of parabens, preservatives, and petrochemicals. And honestly, what I love the most is this chic glass bottle that it comes in and this nice little pump that allows you to get the perfect amount of every time, plus no sticky residue. It's latex compatible, and fun fact, it can be used underwater. So if you go to Uberloop.com, that's U-B-E-R-L-U-B-E.com, and use the code podcast, you will get 10% off orders on their website. I know you won't be disappointed. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I have my very good friend and women's health specialist physician, Dr. Sabrina Sani, here with me as my guest, all the way from Florida. And I'm so excited she has agreed to join us today. So Dr. Sabrina, tell everyone listening a little bit about yourself. And if you want, you can throw in how we met. (laughs)
1: Sure. Um, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. So um, I am a board certified family medicine physician. I completed a three year residency at uh, Riverside Regional Medical Center uh, at BCU. And it was there that I really became interested in women's health. And I started to you notice know, this really large void in midlife women's care. So I started to do a lot of my own research and networking. And I came across a specialized women's health fellowship at the Susan Clinic, which is where I met you. Yeah. You were actually the person that um, responded to my initial email. And you got me down there to you know, interview and shadow all you guys. And I guess really the rest is history, right? So Yeah,
0: I remember um, we had a deep conversation about our love for like power yoga, Oh
1: my gosh, my for Core Power Yoga runs so deep, and I think we bonded over that initially.
0: Yes, although I'm embarrassed to say that my Mm -hmm. exercise regimen has changed drastically since those days. But
1: I mean, I'm blaming coronavirus right now for my lack of exercise and my minimal exercise, but I think we'll all bounce back from that. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Um, Great. So where are you now? After you did your fellowship, tell us where where you landed. So I um, completed the
1: two-year fellowship. I came down to Cleveland Clinic, Florida, um, and uh, started in the gynecology department um, with the hopes of kind of building a midlife menopause practice. And in that, I really became and really remained interested in medical breasts. And so while I was an attending and, you know, started building my practice, I realized that I really wanted to go back and do a medical breast fellowship. So I reached out to my Colleagues and friends at Cleveland Clinic, Ohio, where they actually have a medical breast fellowship, and I was able to complete a medical breast fellowship um, that normally takes a year and about six
0: months. That is, I am actually a week away from completing, so um, I'm the final week, so it's exciting. Congrats! We're so excited to have like you being able to like fight COVID and, you know, be in a new place and finish your fellowship. So for everyone listening who is either a resident or is non-medical, what what does medical breast mean?
1: So medical breast, I mean, it, there's a lot. Of, and I think there's a big misconception because people don't think that medical breast should be its own field, but really it it combines and encompasses, you know, Breast surgery, breast diagnostic imaging, radiology, and oncology. So you really are kind of playing quarterback for a lot of breast cancer patients. You're evaluating those that are high risk and actually screening patients. It composes a lot of breast cancer genetics, which is probably the most fascinating part for me and the part that really excites me the most. Um, and then it also includes breast cancer survivorship, which I, you know, you and I both are um, well in tune to, but it kind of goes into it a little bit deeper in terms of how to manage and understanding the Breast health, um, you know, component, as, as well as you know, maintaining and optimizing, you know, the quality of life after the fact.
0: Yeah. Ooh, that's like a that's a really great summary. I love the whole quarterback like, uh, imagery between the surgeons and their primary care doctor and gynecology. So that is so 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 exciting. Yeah. What um is medical breast very common? Like in academic settings? Is it new? Where, where do you kind of think this is kind of going, this field?
1: So I would say I, I, know, I did not know about medical breasts until I started fellowship. So I saw that it was implemented really well at the Cleveland Clinic. I know that it's implemented at a lot of other larger academic centers. And I really think it should be a larger part of breast health, breast settings.
0: Where do you think the field is
1: going? So I think it's not that common. And I see that it's mostly, you know, prevalent at a a lot of larger academic centers. So Cleveland Clinic has a really well implemented uh, medical breast program. Mayo Clinic does as well. And I think it really should be the future of medicine and future of, you know, breast health. Because I think when you have that one person that kind of takes ownership and leadership, like I mentioned, you know, being the quarterback or kind of being that person that dictates care, things don't get lost in the cracks as much, you know, you got your patients aren't getting lost in the, in the shuffle. And you're really kind of taking taking charge of a patient's care. And I think that really needs to be its own separate field.
0: Yeah, I feel like that's a, a great sort of analysis. And I, I think as a it- you know, when I was doing a lot of primary care, there's this so much like of like telephone where like the patient almost has to in some ways sort of relay things. And I sort of see how you doing medical breasts for these higher risk patients really just creates like a seamless sort of health um, experience for these, these folks, these wonderful women, and just really kind of keeps an eye on things and is up to date with all the latest research. So that's really cool. That's really exciting. We're so excited for you. Oh, thank you. So tell me what are some of the more common medical breast, um, concerns that you see that people come to the office? I'm interested
1: so I would say the most common thing that I see in the office is probably complaints of breast pain. Um, it It's incredibly common, but it's rarely associated with cancer. And so, so generally my rule of thumb is that if pain is localized to a specific area, it will not only require, you know, the clinical breast exam, but also additional imaging with diagnostic mammograms and ultrasounds. But generally if the pain is diffuse, it really comes down to the quality of the pain, you know, the exam findings. The patient's overall risk factors are important, and her age, because we know that we don't do mammograms on women under the age of 30, so they end up getting ultrasounds for evaluation of any kind of lumps, or discharge or pain. But, you know, I I often, a lot of times, I'm counseling these women that there really isn't um, a true for a lot of breast pain that comes into the office a lot of it can be hormonal so pain that can coincide with the cycle we obviously see quite a bit of it during perimenopause and menopause due to like you know really severe hormonal fluctuations mm-hmm. but another large culprit that I feel like women don't know a lot about is caffeine intake so excess caffeine intake can cause a lot of breast tenderness as well as chocolate which is unfortunate because those are you know two oh. major staples and you know, a, a woman's diet, but it's, um, it's a lot of, you know, counseling in, in that regard and, you know, lifestyle modifications um, to kind of adjust and, you know, help, help treat the pain.
0: So, oh my goodness. So wait a second. All right. So caffeine and chocolate. So can this sort of come out of, is this something that usually is associated with caffeine intake and breast pain someone's whole life and kind of starts to get worse or can like all of a sudden one day my caffeine intake kind of cause breast pain?
1: Um, it can be that like you're, it's not necessarily like this gradual buildup. But if you if you were to ask, if you, when I ask patients, you know, like, like, how many cups of coffee a day are you drinking, the chances are they're you know, these women are already drink, drink, drinking, you know, three to four cups of coffee a day, or they admit to, you know, having sodas, you know, with their meals, or, you know, the occasional red bull or five hour energy. So I think it's like those burst of um excessive caffeine intake that women are using for stressful times or to get through work or to get through school things like that.
0: Uh ah, like the burst of caffeine but also yeah. like it can be a culprit in, and that's an important one. So correct. So watch yeah. out. <laughs> what about yeah. what about um nipple what about discharge? Um do you see that complaint? I know I have seen it and this really worries people, especially, you know, if they were Previously, or had ever breastfed, and they feel like they're lactating. What do you do, or sort of how do you work your way through um, discharge?
1: Normally, what we consider pathologic discharge, so discharge that is truly a true concern and abnormal, is that it's bloody discharge, it's spontaneous, and it's unilateral. So, if it qualifies under those three things, those are things that we're you know we're worried about lumps or cancers or something that could be more serious generally speaking breast discharge or nipple discharge that occurs that's clear that appears milky could be from a clogged duct, as you know from women that are breastfeeding or it can just be related to a variety of medications if you're taking it a variety of over-the-counter supplements sometimes I mean most women if they were to honestly squeeze hot enough they'd be able to extract a little bit of nipple discharge so a lot of times I just tell women stop you know Using the nipple because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's actually really nothing pathologic going on
0: here. That's really important. That's great. I'm glad I kind of asked you that because that is something that I see a lot and that really scares women. Um, so Absolutely. you said if it's bloody, if it's on one side and kind of spontaneous, those are sort of the signs Correct. where you might want to be on higher alert. Is that right? Yes.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Okay. I think that you being in medical breast is so great because there is always so much new research and new data. And then basically it's like putting that data in the funnel and then spitting it out in a way that makes sense in large populations. But for now, tell us you know, what we know about just some of the basic known risk factors that are, I would say non-genetic so that women listening can kind of think about what are some of the risk factors that they may be able to, may be able to control?
1: Sure. Yeah. No, I, this is a great question. And I, I when I see patients and see women, I really tell them that there's, there's two sets of risk factors. There's the modifiable ones or the things you can control. And then unfortunately, there's the non-modifiable ones, which we can't control. So things like our age, family history, our race, genetic you know, uh, predisposition. But the things that we can control, I would say the two biggest things that I'll tell women is that They need to maintain a healthy BMI and they need to limit alcohol consumption. So there's decades of data that will prove that women that have elevated BMI's or women that are overweight or women that are having, you know, a a diet that's high in processed foods can actually have increased risks of uh, both premenopausal and postmenopausal breast cancers. Mm -hmm. Alcohol consumption, you know, in terms of moderate amount also carries a pretty high relative risk for increasing um, the development of breast cancer. And, you know, other things that you may or may not be able to control. But I always tell people, reproductive history really matters. So I always want to make sure I know what age was their first period. And, you know, what age did they actually go into menopause or they And have they had children before? And what that experience was like. How many children? How old were they when they had their first child? And did they breastfeed? Because, you know, breastfeeding actually decreases their risk for, for the development of breast cancer.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, another big thing I talk about, too, is something that's not modifiable is your mammographic breast density. So you should know what your breast density is, you know, when you're getting your mammograms, women that have a dense breast will have a higher risk of the development of breast cancer later in life.
0: Mm-hmm. So interesting. So the two biggest things that are the modifiable risk factors is your BMI and how much alcohol you drink. So, sure. Oh, my goodness! How do I say this in a way that doesn't sound terrible, but like what what is the amount of alcohol one could drink and still feel relatively healthy about themselves?
1: So generally speaking, it's about less than seven glasses per week, so about less about a glass a day or less. I tell people that honestly, I would shoot for about three glasses or less a week of alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, that is kind of my standard, but the data really says that, you know, to ensure less than seven glasses per week. Okay. Um, in terms of diet, you know, this is always a different, difficult conversation because you need to work it in the way. But one thing I always say is, I, I think there's so much data out there right now that kind of links certain food to increased risk of breast cancer. So it's really important for me to make sure that patients know like, okay, X doesn't exactly lead to Y in these cases, right? So you have to understand that a lot of these studies or the a lot of these things you see in the media as it relates from dietary intake to breast cancer risk is kind of there's not a lot of good true data because you can't account for all the other factors that are won't that would increase a woman's risk right so you hear a lot about for example you know dairy increasing the risk of breast cancer well there was a study that came out not too long ago from california that said that um you know increased intake of cow's milk um could you know increase your risk for breast cancer but that it's that didn't apply to um cheese so you know when you look at systematic reviews and you look at what all, what all the data shows I tell people generally speaking what you should do is adhere mostly to a whole food plant-based diet if you can limit the intake of red meat and get ample exercise because we know that women that do exercise that can lower their BMI you can decrease your risk
0: that way mm-hmm Okay. So exercise, keep alcohol to a minimum. I, I sort of like the three glasses of wine a week. I think that's, that's really, you know, that's not saying for, for people who do enjoy alcohol, it's not saying nothing, but kind of keeping it down. And then, yeah, there's this sort of the, the epidemiology studies that are, can be really hard to explain. Even I know for me, when I'm explaining them, even to myself or to my patients, we have this association but you're sort of letting us know that there's the link is is more complicated than just a causes b right and then you said you talked about dense breast tissue so let's dive into that for a second because this is can be really common and can make women feel nervous or you know just something that women should we should talk about so how does having dense breast tissue how does that increase your risk for breast cancer
1: currently the way we screen for breast cancer is we use a mammogram and a mammogram we know is not exactly a perfect test when you look at a you know, mammogram, typically a radiologist will categorize breast tissue in four ways. So they, every woman will fall into one of four categories. So the breast tissue will be described as predominantly fatty. It'll be scattered fibroglandular glandular elements, um, heterogeneously dense and extremely dense. Mm-hmm. And the two latter probably make up about 50% of women and the other 50% probably fall in the other two categories. There are things that can change your breast density over time. There's medications. Really the only medication we know of that can truly change breast density is tamoxifen. But, you know, as we age, sometimes uh, breast density can can decrease. And then we know these things fluctuate with our cycle. So, for example, when you look at a mammogram, it can be really hard to distinguish and, and find cancers through really dense breast tissue, right? So people that have generally denser breasts, it can be a little bit more more uh, easy to miss cancers in that way because the tissue is so dense, so dense, so you're not able to um, recognize it. So that's certainly one of the ways. But then, generally speaking, most people that have dense, tissue, dense breast tissues do get additional screening, so they can get things like ultrasounds to get a better look. There are you know risk assessment calculators, all of the all over that you can use to kind of uh, evaluate someone's risk. And generally speaking, that cutoff point is 20%. So if your lifetime risk is greater than 20%, you you would qualify for something called enhanced surveillance, which means you would alternate with um, yearly mammography and um, MRI. So you get a better picture of the breast tissue. So I tend to use that risk calculator on a lot of my patients, if not all of my midlife patients, to get a sense of of a good screening Outline for them.
0: Okay, so if your lifetime risk is greater than twenty percent, that's when you implement advanced sort of screening techniques. It sounds like, and the dense yeah. breast tissue is important because it's just harder for the radiologist to see. That's kind of what you're saying. Yeah, you mentioned that uh, a lifetime risk of twenty percent, kind of like that threshold. When when should someone even think about getting genetic testing? what is the threshold for that? Is it family history? Is it just should everyone do it? What are your thoughts on that?
1: So there are, you know, various medical associations and uh, organizations that put out certain guidelines. In terms of genetic testing, I tend to follow the National Comprehensive Cancer Network um, guidelines or the NCCN guidelines for who should get referred for genetic testing. It's different people. So one would be if you personally have breast cancer diagnosed under the age of fifty, so that would be an indication to get genetic testing. If you were to have ovarian cancer at any age, like you know, that would be an an indication for genetic testing. If you develop bilateral breast cancer, male breast cancer, um, if you have any Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry with breast and ovarian cancer at any age, and then obviously a compelling family history. And so, one thing I tell patients too is it's, it's not necessarily a strong compelling family history of breast cancer you have to look at their entire family history of all cancers because we know we know now that there's so many uh, breast cancer genes out there or genes in general that can cause not only breast cancer but other cancers as well so I always like to ask about colon cancer history ovarian cancer history thyroid cancer um, gastric cancer so there's there's different genes that you can kind of will kind of trigger in your mind if you see that a patient has a lot of colon cancer and breast cancer, or maybe endometrial cancer and, you know, thyroid cancer, things like that. So a full getting a full family history. Now, most, most insurances, I think, with the exception of Medicare will cover genetic counseling. So that initial visit where you go to the genetic counselor, mm-hmm. and if you qualify, a lot of those, a lot of those insurance companies will also cover a um, genetic test as well.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really important point is that there's kind of this like stopgap where you do the counseling session first, as opposed to just getting like, you know, there's this kind of just that so you just get like all your DNA tested. So before you do that, someone will kind of sit with you, go over this family history, and then sort of decide if you should proceed to the next step. So I'm kind of saying that Right. 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 Um, so there's a lot of things that can really increase someone's risk. So I think that was like really comprehensive. Um, what are the current, what are, so for people who are not, it, it, you know, they look around their family and they kind of don't see a strong family history. What the heck are your what are your feelings on screening guidelines for the general population? Because I know they kind of go back and forth a little bit. So where do you kind of sit right now? And it's okay if in two, three years, you know, your mind changes. But today, what do you kind of think about screening just for the general population?
1: So for the general population, I, I, I opened the discussion at age 40. I say, you know, up until 2016, the USPSTF, which is a really large organization, you know, recommended mammograms starting at age 40, the American College of Radiology, American Cancer Society, everybody was kind of on the same page at that point. So up until a couple of years ago, everybody was getting their mammogram at 40. And I think in that, women were kind of used to getting their mammogram at 40, right? They they knew that, you know, once they turned 40, they, they would get their initial script for their mammogram. But now it really should be individualized. And that's, kind, that's typically what I do, have the discussion with the patient, you know, guidelines have changed. So we have different guidelines saying different things. We can start as early as 40 or some, some guidelines say you start at 50. I generally will individualize it. I will maybe get a baseline at age 40, um, but generally at age 45, they'll be getting annual mammograms through. I know some people, you know, start at 50, some people start at 40 and go annually, but I think you have to kind of base it off the patient's preference, the patient's risk factors, and the patient's goals, really.
0: Mhm. I totally feel that vibe. I think that patients should really have a sort of say and also at the same time sort of feel educated as to the background behind whatever decision makes them feel the most confident. How do you talk your patients through when baseline mammograms return and they are called back for a repeat mammogram or an ultrasound, because that's so so common, it's um, so common, it's so common. And one thing I tell—I mean,
1: especially with um, a first mammogram. So if I have a 40-year-old woman who's ever, you know, average risk, but we, you know, she's decided that she wants to get a baseline today, there's a very high chance she's going to get called back for additional imaging. Um, so I kind of also set the precedent at the initial visit, even if, you know, she's 45, she's been having mammograms the whole time. I will even say like, you know, you have dense breast tissue on your, on your mammogram. Um, you know, the radiologists, if they see that we, they can not get a true clear picture, they, they may call you back for additional imaging and it's not anything you need to worry about, but I'll keep you posted. And if we need to order it, you know, we'll take it one step at a time. So I think generally, if you set the expectation up front. There's less of that anxiety or fear down the line when you give them a call and say, hey, actually, we need to throw in an ultrasound, The the radiologist, you know, wants to get a clearer look.
0: Yeah. So speaking of mammograms, you know, we, you've touched on the fact that they're sort of an imperfect screening test, but that's kind of our standard for right now. What right. Um, first, I guess my first question is tell our listeners the difference between a regular mammogram and a tomosynthesis mammogram. What's the difference between those two?
1: Yes, so the mammogram is a two dimensional uh, read on um, the breast tissue. So it's basically a 2D image of breast tissue where they're able to see things like architectural distortions, masses, and calcifications. The 3D mammogram, which is also known as the tomosynthesis, is um, like I mentioned, a 3D picture of the breast. So it does that 2D picture. But it also almost forms. um, There's a large arc that goes over the entire top of the breast, so it's almost like they're able to slice pictures as if it's like a page of a book. So the radiologists can actually create a three D image of the breast, where they get a much better picture um, of of the breast, and they're able to detect more cancers overall. So if you were to screen a thousand women. You would probably find four breast cancers per thousand women on just baseline screening mammogram. Mm-hmm. The tomosynthesis, on average, you'd probably add about one and a half extra cases for breast can- uh, one and a half cases per one thousand women. So you're looking at about five and a half breast cancers with tomosynthesis versus four with the mammogram. Um, and I typically reserve the mammogram, or the 3D mammogram for women with extremely dense breast tissue, just because it kind of gives that better look. It, it, it also depends on insurance coverage, too. Some people just want to get their baseline mammogram and then have to pay extra out of pocket because it's included. But generally speaking, if you have dense breast tissue, I think a 3D mammogram is going to be your better bet in terms of getting a clear picture with fewer callbacks. So that's, what, that's a good point about it, because it's got 15% fewer callbacks. So women you know, don't have to necessarily worry about going in and having to get diagnostic imaging or additional ultrasounds, which is the 3D mammogram.
0: Interesting. And then so what other what other screening modalities are kind of in the pipeline? You know, a lot of my patients just ask me, why can't we just do ultrasounds? Or, you know, so what are the other types of screening modalities that we're currently sort of using? And what is what do you think is like the future?
1: So, I think at this point, mammograms are really going to remain the gold standard because it's the only screening modality or imaging modality we have that has a proven proven method to increase the chance of survival survival through earlier detection. I would say the one thing that's probably kind of getting a lot of attention and in my personal medical opinion i I don't recommend it is thermography mm-hmm. um, so it's kind of it uses a special camera to measure the temperature on on the skin, and the idea is that you know, if you have breast cancer, if you have cancer cells that are growing or multiplying, you know, rapidly, that blood flow would be increased to that area. So if you use dermography, you'd be able to kind of see these hot spots, so to speak, right? So the the skin temperature would go up and it would be better detected on dermography. And it's been actually around for a while. But I feel like for whatever reason, in the last, you know, couple of years, it's really gotten a lot more attention. I don't recommend it for patients. There's actually no validity. I Even the FDA kind of put out a statement, I believe, last year that said there's really no evidence to suggest that that these devices on their own, in addition with other tests or independently, are an effective screening tool. So I definitely tell patients who, you know, are either scared about radiation or they're like, I don't want anything invasive, that they're not going to get a really clear um, picture with a thermogram. So I I don't recommend it, but I think that's one thing that's kind of trying to gain a lot of uh, media attention right now. Thermography,
0: like thermo, because it's using the temperatures. Oh, that's really interesting.
1: So it's been around for a while, but I think, you know, I've been in in South Florida, like it's definitely a a common question that I get asked is, you know, why can't I just get a thermogram or so and so got a thermogram and it was, you know, not painful and I have breast implants and, you know, I'm worried about my mammogram. I mean if you have breast implants, your mammogram is not going to lecture your implants.
0: Yeah. That's a really good point, actually. Do, Do implants, you know, is there any association with missing cancer, increased risk of cancer or anything like that? No. Interesting. Okay. That's wonderful to know. So you mentioned sort of in the beginning, how fascinated you were about the genetics. Of sort of breast cancer. So, without getting too too deep, what is what do you think is really the most interesting part about the genetics of this type of cancer?
1: I mean, I think it's ever changing, and I think, like I mentioned before, there's just so many new genes that are coming, um, you know, out that can carry a risk. So I think most people are familiar with, you know, the BRCA gene, which carries like, you know, over an 80% risk for the development of breast cancer throughout a woman's lifetime. Mm -hmm. But There's other highly penetrant genes and even moderately penetrant genes that can also increase your risk that would also qualify you for risk reducing mastectomy, just like the the BRCA gene would, or may qualify you for that enhanced surveillance that I was talking about earlier. So I think there's so much more out there that we have to learn about and there's actually a lot of data coming out about single nucleotide polymorphism, so SNPs, um, which are, you know, basically really tiny alterations in, in genetic makeup that can, that can increase your risk. So I think that will be on the forefront of a lot of uh, breast cancer genetics and breast cancer risk, you know, in the coming years for sure
0: that's so exciting especially as we start to like we throw around the term precision medicine a lot and i think in our in our respective fields we're, we're kind of thinking about how that precision medicine will fit in or make sense or you know and this this sounds like uh, really interesting and exciting things not only for as a as a scientist and as a physician but really as our patients to sort of better serve them better determine who's at high risk all that kind of stuff right so I have to ask you again without giving me a dissertation because I could, if I, if you yeah. asked me, but what is your thoughts about hormone therapy? D- does it increase risk of breast cancer? What is your opinion about this being a women's health specialist and also being a medical breast expert?
1: I think, I mean, this probably could deserve its entirely own episode. Mm-hmm. I think hormone
0: therapy gets a really
1: bad reputation with regards to breast cancer risk. I think unfortunately, you know the media definitely uh, portrays it in a way that's much more, much more prevalent than it actually is. So we know from the Women's Health Initiative, which you know as well, um, there was a small increased risk in patients that were um, on the combined hormone therapy, right? So the estrogen and progesterone combined, um, as it related to breast cancer risk. We know now that that risk actually clinically is very, very small. I mean, I think I read a statistic not too long ago that you probably have a higher chance of getting identity theft than Mm -hmm. um, getting breast cancer from hormone therapy. We also know now that estrogen alone has a decreased risk of breast cancer. So in women that don't have a uterus, that don't require that progesterone, your chances are lower for developing breast cancer. I mean, there's so many different things. I mean, that study used a formulation that, you know, is not, common in practice today. So I don't know that you can just generally generalize it to all of hormone therapies available. I still think even if I mean, I've put a patients who've had mastectomies and oophorectomy on hormone therapy, for menopausal symptoms for prevention of cardiovascular disease all the time without being scared of their breast cancer risk, right? There's so much data and there's so much out there that women need to know because I think it just gets so skewed, you know, and lost in the shuffle.
0: What a unique position that you are in, in that you've had this really deep education. And and for those of you listening, we did the same training and the same fellowship in, you know, menopausal hormone replacement. And, you know, very, very, um, you know, significant data and research about the real risks and benefits and safety and efficacy. And you know, you're also really in this medical breast field. So you're really kind of paving the way for like, I think something really new and exciting. And and I think that really this this should put you in a in a great place to train other people and educate the population because this is really, you know, place where you're this intersection where you sort of live basically in in terms of your medical career. So I'm so excited that you Mm -hmm. have kind of like given all this all this knowledge bomb today of course thank you so much for having me i had so much fun chatting with I, you i know so where can people find you if they want to shoot you questions or you know where um remind us again where you practice and where you're located
1: sure so people can find me on instagram at sks underscore md and i'm also on twitter at um at sabrina k Sani. Um, and then I'm also seeing patients here in South Florida at Cleveland Clinic, Florida located in Weston. So just outside Fort Lauderdale and hopefully, um, we'll start to do a lot more virtual visits so I can see people, you know, from across the state and, you know, hopefully across the country if, if they're not able to come see me in person. So, wow. um, stay tuned for that. Yeah.
0: Any kind of last summary, any last thoughts you want to leave people with?
1: I mean, I think, you know, for for women that, you know, want to optimize their breast health and or women that are, you know, going through menopause or perimenopause, I encourage all of you to, you know, find a provider that you trust, find a reliable physician that you can go to to discuss, you know, your symptoms, find somebody that, you know, you can confide in. I mean, really, you need to advocate for yourself, and that's a really big message I tell a lot of my patients: is you got to advocate for yourself and find the right people to help you. Because we do exist; we're out here. We just we there's not many of us, and we we need to find we need to find you too.
0: Well, thank you so much. I'm so glad that you joined us. Um, Sabrina is definitely busy finishing up her fellowship and seeing patients. Thank you guys so much for listening in. Have a wonderful rest of your day or evening. And we hope to have you listening again on the podcast. Bye.